0: everybody, and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Cal. You're tuned to University of California and listener-sponsored KALX Berkeley 90.7. I'm your host, Emily Ellers, a graduate student myself. This week, we'll be speaking with Nathan McClintock, a graduate student in the Geography Department whose dissertation focuses on overcoming obstacles to urban agriculture, particularly here in Oakland. It's good to have you with us, Nathan. Thanks, Emily. Well, can you begin by laying out your work? What exactly are some of the obstacles to urban agriculture in low-income areas?
1: Uh, Sure. I'm looking at, um, well, I'm in geography department, but I spend a lot of time in city planning. I spend a lot of time in the environmental science department as well. So uh, I'm pretty much doing an interdisciplinary project that's looking at um, obstacles, whether those obstacles are... questions of zoning or planning or land cost, but also looking at sort of environmental obstacles, which might be soil contamination. Um, there are Most urban agriculture obviously would pop up on uh, vacant parcels, and a lot of these vacant parcels are found in low-income neighborhoods, but also low-income neighborhoods are often zoned industrial. And so as an industry has sort of uh, moved out of these parts of, um, I'm working in the Oakland flatlands, so as industry has moved out of the Oakland flatlands, uh, there's land that is available that community members are interested in, in, in starting to garden on, but there could be high levels of lead or other kinds of like organic contaminants. So,
0: and how do you deal with that?
1: Uh, well, I'd say the main thing that you deal with first is uh, kind of doing a uh, precautionary assessment, looking at uh, the land use history, first seeing how it was zoned, then trying to get a, some kind of land use history, whether that's looking at old tax records or looking at uh, old fire insurance, and that's these Sanborn maps, these old fire insurance maps, to see actually what kind of physical structures were there, if there were ever any. Uh, you can look at old aerial photography uh, to see if there were structures on the given parcel. Um, and if there were and they're no longer there and the, and, the, and the parcel's still vacant, that means it was bulldozed or torn down. So you can assume that you know there's probably a lot of lead for example, if it was an old wooden structure, they used lead paint up um, for many years, and so if it had burned down or if it was bulldozed, there's actually going to probably be a high lead level. If you find, according to the land history, that it was some sort of industrial use, like a you know an auto body shop or some sort of factory or something like that, there's a good chance that a lot of solvents or whatever may have spilled onto the soil there, and so I would say for most. Um, uh, community organizations that are advocating urban agriculture, urban gardening, doing gardening actually in the soil on those places that actually had been industrial would be a bad idea. And so you'd want to take other precautionary approaches such as building raised beds or like planter boxes or something like that. But uh, it's better to err on the side of caution. So that's kind of what my, my research is about. It's really about doing some of this legwork that these community-based organizations aren't really going to have the time or money to to do and so really to create a portfolio of available vacant land in Oakland. First, to say how much is there, how much food could we potentially produce for the city, and then narrowing that down to say, okay, here's 20 sites. We're going to do some deeper land use inventory, land use history, and some soil testing on those sites, and then based on that, and based on the needs of um, the community advisory committee. We're gonna really narrow it down to say five sites that we're gonna really move on and try to get the city to uh, switch over to the parks, the, the parks department, or something, but with a specific focus on using for uh, urban food production.
0: How much food can they produce in Oakland, in the flatlands of Oakland?
1: Yeah, so that's I mean I haven't gotten that far yet in the in the uh, in the research. We are estimating that it's like going to be an incredibly small amount, but, you know, perhaps it's like one or 2% of the food needs for the city could actually pr- be produced within the city because Oakland, like other cities in the Bay Area is incredibly densely uh, built, you know, because of the, the hills and a lot of parkland in the hills it's protected. The city never really had a huge, um, didn't really have much of an opportunity to expand, you know, up spatially. So there's a lot of, uh, high density building in the flatlands themselves. And so, there really isn't a whole lot of vacant land thus far, unlike cities like Detroit, where half of the the city has emptied out. I think there's like 60,000 vacant parcels in Detroit. You know, So if you go visit Detroit, it's like nature has moved back in. You see wild turkeys running around. You see trees growing up in old vacant lots and stuff like that. So you have these more spacious areas. Urban agriculture really could feed a lot more of the city. In a place like Oakland, because it's so densely uh, built it's not going to provide a huge amount on the vacant lots themselves. If you, think, if you, t- if you look at rooftop gardenings and, and, and the potential for rooftop production, then you can grow actually a lot more food. But hopefully we'll be able to you know, say that we could produce 1% to 2% of the food needs for the city. I guess the point is that for urban agriculture, it's not so much about just food production, but it's all these other services that urban agriculture can provide. So you've got open space, providing parkland in in neighborhoods where there really aren't parks. So there's open space. Um, There's all the sort of ecosystem services that go along with open space, whether that's like providing habitat for different biodiversity for birds or for animals. But I think the most important part, the most important role for urban agriculture in a place like Oakland is really just to provide um, education to students, to community members about where their food comes from. So they actually get the opportunity to engage in food production and to see, okay, this is what a seed is and this is what happens when you plant the seed and here's actually where you get you know, a carrot from. Um, so many people are disconnected from actually participating and understanding where food comes from. So there's that aspect, this educational aspect that can be tied into, you know, student groups or community groups or after-school programs so kids actually can be there. If we talk about um, food systems localization and trying to grow more food locally for the city, most of that's going to take place out in the peri-urban areas, out in, like, rural Alameda County. And there's actually a tremendous amount of farmland in eastern Alameda County. So a lot of that production could actually take place in the sort of nine-county Bay area but in the rural in the rural parts but in the cities themselves it's still important i think to have these sort of like pilot projects these like little lighthouse projects where you're showing people what it means to actually produce food i think that's this other part that's more difficult to quantify you know so we can quantify okay here's how many pounds of food we can produce but how do you actually quantify it? like the uh, educational impact um and just reconnecting people sort of to their food system.
0: I know that the type of food available to people or food access is a particularly big issue in Oakland. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, the flatlands in Oakland are often uh, considered what's called a food desert. So people have used this uh, this expression, food desert, um, to, to mean a place where it's not that there's no food there, but there the there's no e- easy access to healthier, or nutritious food, right? So... Uh, there may not be a supermarket where you can actually get fresh produce. So you might want to call it like a fresh food desert. You know, some people have also called it a junk food jungle at the same time. So it's this interesting sort of juxtaposition of two totally opposite metaphors of like a desert and a jungle growing in the same place. But basically the idea being that um, supermarkets, many of them left in the 60s and 70s when when industry left these neighborhoods... The neighborhoods really declined, and and like the tax base uh, declined. People moved out, industry moved out, and you know, a lot of these uh, supermarkets moved out as well. These same supermarkets that had come in in the 30s and 40s and pushed all the mom and pop stores out of business then failed themselves, basically leaving like a, a food access desert. You know, so what came in in the wake were either fast food joints or liquor stores. And the liquor stores do sell food, they sell some of the liquor stores sell like canned food and stuff like that. But to actually access fresh produce, like fresh fruits and vegetables, is pretty difficult to find in a place like the Oakland Flatlands. And this is what's happening in the Oakland Flatlands is pretty common across low-income areas across the U.S. and, and to a lesser extent in Canada. But you find it in neighborhoods in um, San Francisco, too, like Bayview-Hunters Point. Um, You find it in other parts of the Bay Area and parts of L.A., et cetera. And there's been tons of studies done on food deserts and, and like, the correlation between the absence of supermarkets and access but also the over-representation or the over-concentration of uh, fast food joints in these same neighborhoods and the correlation with that and the obesity rates in those same neighborhoods. So you see people who their only access is to canned food at uh, a liquor store that may actually be higher priced or to fast food. Also, the other part of the problem is that often there isn't public transit available to get to the place where they want to, you know, go buy food. So they could go get food, you know, at the Pack and Save in Emeryville, but, you know, they're going to have to get on public transit at some point, And that could be like an hour ride or something like that. So it's, it's, it's about proximity and it's about, you know, what actually is available. So part of the urban agriculture movement in a place like Oakland is, is really about creating one of many alternatives. It's like urban agriculture is not the only solution. It's definitely a solution in the sense of um, this educational component, but also in terms of producing some amount of food and having like a a market stand on the street or having a a CSA, which is a community supported agriculture, which is like a subscription box where you pay or it's provided at the beginning of the year. Like, a, you set up a contract where you get a delivery every week for, you know, the growing season or whatever. So, you know, having a CSA or having a farmer's market or having, you know, open garden hours or whatever, that's just one of many sort of uh, food systems local- localization solutions. But really the main one would be, you know, the bringing in new f- food stores and setting up alternative sort of uh, retail situations. So.
0: And how do you do that?
1: <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that's a huge question, right? And... So that's the organization that I'm working with for my research that's sort of my community partner with my research is called the HOPE Collaborative, and they're based in Oakland. It's a two-year project that's funded by the Kellogg Foundation. They are sponsoring similar programs in eight cities in the U.S. and one Indian reservation, and it's part of this uh, thing called a food and fitness collaborative. And so they're setting up these food and fitness collaboratives across the country, and Oakland uh, got one of these one of these planning grants and so for during these two years they're basically trying to identify all the obstacles and possible solutions to uh, food system localization. But it's not just food systems, they're looking at food systems, they're looking at community economic development, they're looking at fitness and health and like how to basically maintain a sort of healthy environment for young people are um, other focuses sort of on youth youth development, youth and families, and sort of what the intersection with that and the built environment is. So you're sort of looking at the intersection of safer streets, sidewalks where people can walk, public transportation, parks and open space, local food systems, and then bringing jobs into these low-income areas. So really, it's a, a, a much more holistic uh, vision of city planning. It's a holistic vision of food systems planning. You can't just talk about urban agriculture and take it out of the uh, this, this sort of whole network of, of relationships. With the Hope Collaborative, we're divided into food systems action team, built environment action team, youth and families, and then um, community, local community economic development. And so basically over, we're sort of in in the process of devising an action plan that will then be passed along to the Kellogg Foundation, they will then in turn provide more funding, I think for an additional eight years, or maybe it's another 10 years, uh, to actually put in place, to have the funding, you know, in the millions of dollars to actually put in place some of these projects. And so we don't know exactly what these projects are going to be, you know, but perhaps after this land inventory that I'm doing, one of those things might be, you know, okay, we're going to move on these three parcels for, you know, urban agriculture demonstration farms. Um, Another thing that they're talking about is to develop a small grocery store that might be youth-run, sort of to teach entrepreneurial skills and job training skills to youth, but it would also be cooperatively owned by the youth, um, and they would manage it. That's another idea. Another idea would be setting up small-scale distribution centers basically to try to revitalize in some ways Oakland's old food processing and food distribution industries that they had that basically folded um, or started to fade away in the 60s. But, I mean, Oakland has a has a history of food production and food processing and food distribution. So, like, Fruitvale used to be where all the fruit trees were, were that were uh, picked and canned and all the canneries were there. And uh, North Oakland as well was a huge orchard part of town that was then transformed into... a uh, to process fruit. It's really about trying to revitalize some of these old industries, but then to create new sort of smaller scale distributions, systems that are moving away from the, like the more massive industrial, uh, you know, the, the sort of Cisco systems that are out there that are in charge of providing all the food for all the school systems and all the government offices, etc. And to try to like sort of uh, make some of those uh, relationships smaller and more, uh, more localized, so...
0: You're listening to University of California and listener-supported KALX Berkeley 90.7. And for those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Nathan McClintock, a graduate student in the Geography Department, about his work in urban agriculture here in Oakland. Now, Nathan, could you speak about what's going on on campus, what UC Berkeley students are doing?
1: There's a, uh, a lots of undergrads who are, who are taking part in urban agriculture, and I've, uh, for the last three years, taught a class in ESMA 117, which is... Uh, I think formally on the books, urban garden ecosystems, but for the last couple of years, we've called it urban agriculture just to be more encompassing and, and look more at, at the uh, policy and social science and sort of public health aspects of urban agriculture. And, and it's a class that um, we've largely changed the syllabus for how it, you know, how it's been taught in the past. In the past, it's really just been about the sort of ecosystem ecosystems in a urban garden looking at the insects and things like that. But we've tried to, you know, look at the different roles that urban agriculture plays, not only in the U.S. and, in, and in locally, like in Berkeley and Oakland, but also in the developing world, you know, why urban agriculture arises in, in the slums of Nairobi or Mumbai and looking at sort of these processes of urbanization that are taking place and how people are turning to urban agriculture as sort of a coping strategy, but then also looking at urban agriculture in in the U.S. and sort of how it's arising. These food justice uh, projects are arising for similar reasons, but also arising in these uh, sort of post-industrial landscapes and as capital and as uh, businesses have moved out there's these spaces that are opening up, and there's also these these needs opening up, such as food access. And so urban agriculture is sort of sprouting up in these places. We have this social context, but then we also teach this sort of soil ecology, the practical aspects of growing food. So the lab is every Friday for a couple hours, and uh, the students basically just learn to grow food, from preparing the bed to planting the, planting the seeds to making compost to harvesting to doing insect you know, pest control, etc. We also have taken students out to do on weekend trips to do urban livestock, we can actually keep urban livestock on the uh, the garden. The garden's over here at the corner of Virginia and Walnut, which is just uh, just north of the Oxford Greenhouses. So should stop by sometime. Can anybody come? If yeah, want the yeah. Um, if you're a student, you can uh, try to get in there to garden. There's usually open hour, open hours on Sundays from I believe one to five. Um, but in the fall, the students who take the ESPA 117 class often then turn around, and in the spring, they, they teach a decal, the student-run classes. And so they teach a, an urban intro to urban gardening class uh, in the spring, and it should be starting up next week, I think. But the class is great, and, and, and the response has been overwhelming. We, we take 50 to 60 students. 60 is too much. We're going to try to cut it back next year, but... Um, you know, we'll have 50 students enrolled and 50, 50 on the waiting list. And so there's a huge demand for it, and people really seem to enjoy it. And I think it's also because it's really it's so different than most of the classes that people take at Cal. It's definitely got the, the lecture and the, and the book work component, but to actually, like, physically in the lab, like, learn how to grow food and then to go out, you know, on the weekends and, like, slaughter chickens and and, and pluck them and and butcher them yourself and and learn really how to connect to the food system is is something that I think is pretty revolutionary. So it's been a real pleasure to teach, and it's also just a real pleasure, and it's really been part of my inspiration, is to sort of see how inspired the students themselves are. And that's sort of what's kept me going and actually what drove me to start doing my research in the first place here locally, because I was doing my research overseas in uh, West Africa first. And then just by teaching this class and seeing how inspired the students were by their own environment and, like, working in Oakland and, and with some of these organizations, I was just like, hey, I need to I need to do the same thing. I need to bring it back home. So,
0: That brings up an interesting point. Can you speak about how you got into this?
1: Let's see. I, so I did my undergrad at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and uh, where I did radio for, for four years. WXYC 89.3 FM. Check it out on the web. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I actually, I guess there actually is a connection. I was, I was really into um, world music, and I did. I was like the world music director, and so I would listen to all the world music, and I would do some specials now and again. Um, and I was really into African music, and, and I always knew that I wanted to go to Africa, and I wasn't sure how I was going to get there. And eventually, I uh, as soon as I got out of college, I joined the Peace Corps, and I was in uh, Mali, West Africa. And while I was there, I was just uh, I was doing agricultural work and living in a small village. Just really got um, into sort of farming in the village. We were farming cotton and corn and animals. After that, you know, the amazing experience, which was life-changing, I went back to uh, do my master's in agriculture with the idea that I was going to go back and do a lot of work overseas is back in the developing world working on agricultural extension projects for my masters I did that for uh, about a year and a half doing some consulting work um, working in West Africa and in Haiti well all the time when I was traveling and working I would always you know fly into the capital city and then go out into rural areas but what always sort of struck me was just how much food production was taking place in the capitals themselves and you know flying into the to the airport and then going from the airport to downtown or whatever just seeing how in all the medians of all the highways there'd be you know corn planted or there'd be livestock grazing and so I was always in sort of fascinated by this this sort of juxtaposition of urban and rural in the same place so that that was sort of always on the back burner in my mind oh that'd be a really interesting thing to study and then so when I came to to Cal to start my PhD I uh, initially was going to go back to Mali and to Bamako and do my research there and I was first going to do it looking at cotton farming in uh, rural Mali but then I realized I didn't really want to live in my old village again for you know a, another year or two, and it was a great place. But I was also getting older and wanting more comfort <laughs> and stuff, and just wanting a change, wanting to be in the city and more connected to just like urban life there. And so I was like, hey, this is a great time to start focusing on urban agriculture. So I started it, and it was fascinating. And I spent the summer of 2006 just studying urban agriculture in Bamako. Came back and taught s 117 fall of 2006. And I was like, you know, I really should focus here because I'm really, I really feel plugged into the outside world, the developing world. I feel more connected with like communities in Africa and Haiti than I did to where I lived, you know. So I was like, I I think I would like to do something where I'm actually, you know, working with local organizations and just like getting on my bike and going to do my, uh, you know, do do my research. So kind of a long trip, Mm -hmm. but it all sort of evolved from a, from a logical place. So. Then with this most recent crash, this most recent economic crisis, I think there's a huge place for urban agriculture, and it's actually coming back into the sort of public discourse. So I'd say urban agriculture in the U.S. has been definitely a function of the economy. With every major recession or depression we've had, you've seen a spike in urban agriculture. So in the 1870s, you had major urban agriculture programs in World War I. You know, you started getting, I'm not sure if they were actually called victory gardens at that point, but... They had, you know, these sort of urban gardening campaigns. In the Great Depression, there were huge job creation campaigns that involved urban gardening, more victory gardens during World War II. And then again in the 1970s, with the sort of economic, you know, stagflation of the the 1970s, um, people really started getting into community gardening as well. So we're back at another one of these junctures in history where, you know, urban agriculture really is inspiring people. I think when people are in, like, this types of state of crisis, they, you know, if you sort of, like, pull in a little bit and and, and are a little bit more in control of, of like, where your food's coming from, I think it gives you also a little bit of a sense of power as well because, you know, we're watching our bank accounts decline or, you know, the cost of this or that go up. It's, like, the one thing that, you know, you can get in the garden and you can grow your own food and... And it gives you some sort of sense of like grounding, I think. No pun intended. But uh,
0: and on the political front, where do you see urban agriculture headed? Is there a future for urban agriculture?
1: I think there's a huge opportunity for it now, and it's starting to enter the public discourse. During the Depression, I guess, Eleanor Roosevelt advocated Victory Gardens, and, and the USDA was really anti her advocating for Victory Gardens because they were afraid that it was going to impact the livelihoods of farmers. She put one in, and uh, people across America started doing Victory Gardens, and I think, I'm not sure what year exactly, but at some point, you know, a third of all the food being grown in America was being grown in people's backyards and or front yards. So it's pretty amazing what a little bit of uh, political motivation can can actually do. I'm not, you know, super uh, optimistic about Obama's choice for agriculture secretary. I mean, he picked Tom Vilsack, who's a sort of your standard agribusiness guy from Iowa. I think what will be really important is that some urban food production, things like school lunches, all these things actually get taken out of the USDA and put over into uh, Health and Human Services. They're talking about developing some sort of office for urban policy. So bringing agriculture onto those organizations or those agencies' agendas, I think, will be really important. I think there's a lot of popular call for this, but on a policy level, I don't know how much is actually taking place yet. Just because Obama's in office doesn't mean our job's over. It's going to be harder now. I've been focusing on this kind of stuff for years, and so I kind of take for granted the importance of, of not only eating you know, healthy food that, that, that's not grown with chemicals. You know, we take for granted, I guess, the ability to just get in the car or to buy a ticket somewhere and just, like, go out and go hiking in the Sierra or, or um, you know, go out to, I don't know, Marin and hike around or whatever and just to, like, sort of be outside. But there's so many kids, and so not, I mean, not just kids, but there's so many people who are living in the flatlands who don't really have that opportunity, whether it's they don't have the time or the money or, you know, access, or it's just, like, never been part of what they were brought up with. Um, and so I think it's a pretty amazing thing to see... Uh, these organizations, sort of exposing kids to, you know, to to nature. And nature isn't just the wilderness. You know, nature is like the bugs that live in the lawn, you know. It's like the earthworms, and it's the compost pile. And so really just, like, turning kids on and connecting them to not just where food comes from, but just, like, that sort of sense of place I think is, like, hugely important. And uh, I was working this summer with uh, the Oakland Food Connection, which is a, a great organization that does mostly work in East Oakland, Um, run by a guy who's actually from East Oakland, and uh, he's been not only teaching students about growing growing the food but also preparing it you know so he'll grow food and then harvest it and then like whip out the little propane stove and they'll and they'll whip something up you know and throw some garlic in there and just like watching the kids get excited about cooking is really really inspiring but it was also really inspiring I was I helped them uh, put up some uh, a raised uh, a rooftop garden in East Oakland at a middle school and it was just really inspiring watching uh, these little kids build these boxes these planter boxes especially the little girls because they You know, never really been given the opportunity to like pick up tools and, you know, cut wood and hammer and nail things together. And, you know, you watch how tentative they are at the beginning and like how awkward and clumsy they are and how sort of barraging they are about like, oh, I can't do this. But, you know, within, you know, a couple hours, they're just like wielding that hammer and, you know, pounding those nails and, you know, building that box. And just the sort of confidence that you see from them taking part in that is really, really inspiring. So I think the combination of, I don't know, getting kids and, and adults just to sort of like work with their hands again as well and like reintegrating our minds and bodies I think is a huge part of what urban agriculture has to offer and I think that's something that, again, we can't really place value on, but it's a huge part of this story. Awesome. It's nice to, to do work that uh, I feel like is meaningful and is actually applied to. I mean, I've had people say, wow, what you're doing sounds so practical. And mm-hmm. it's not, uh, I mean, this, this show is dedicated to, to graduate research and I you kind of, I mean, maybe in a place like City Planning, you guys do um, practical applied research. But in most of the social sciences and geography is sort of a weird hybrid. But I would say it leans more towards social science here at Berkeley. It's pretty, you know, I kind of had to fight tooth and nail to to do, to design my research in a way that would sort of satisfy the, not necessarily demands of individual professors, but just kind of like the disciplinary demands of what human geography is to do that and to actually do applied research or sort of kind of go counter each other. A lot of the social sciences look from a reflective or critical perspective of something. You know, they would say, well, you should go and study these urban agriculture programs and, you know, tease them apart and see, basically critique them to to show how they're not good. And uh, I think that's important, and it's incredibly important to be constantly critical of these things. But to do that, I mean, you risk paralyzing and, and... you know, just sort of, like, leaving depressed. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to do something that was simultaneously critical but at the same time, you know, useful and engaged and participatory. I think it's, you know, really important to try to always keep in mind of, like, how is my research actually going to be applied? Like, what is this, what's, like, how is this ultimately going to serve the community who I'm studying? Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I felt when I was doing my research in Africa, I didn't feel like I could walk away from there saying, like, you know, yeah, my research is going to help you at, here here's how x y and z you know i just felt like in the end like i'm just going to be wasting these people's time and then
0: and i think that's one of the main like criticisms of academia you know that it is disconnected from any
1: absolutely you know practical and, reality or yeah and that's it's interesting cuz you know you have this is berkeley's a land grant university which is you know they were set up by the government in the 1800s to you know do agricultural and natural resources uh, research and extension. And extension being the key key part here, you know, of taking the knowledge that's developed and actually, uh, you know, distilling it and then sort of disseminating it out to the public. And, you know, that whole model has changed a lot so that it's actually a lot more participatory and there's like on-farm research and the, and the farmers themselves are helping come up with the research questions. But Berkeley, believe it or not, still is a land grant. There is this sort of mandate to do work that, should be extended to the public in a way and I I feel like uh, you know so the social sciences could certainly benefit from that sort of extension model of uh, you know doing work that then is distilled into a way that people can understand it because I don't know you know if you're not a social scientist and you read a social science article it's just total gibberish and jargon distilling that into sort of a more palatable article or an op-ed or whatever I think is just really important And,
0: and if people want to learn more where should they go?
1: If you want some general information about sort of urban agriculture, there's a great uh, website called City Farmer, so cityfarmer.org. definitely wanted to point you guys to the uh, HOPE Collaborative, and their website is www.oaklandfoodandfitness, one word, .net. and HOPE stands for Health for Oakland's People and Environment. So check their website out. Um, you also should check out some different organizations in um, in Oakland and Bay Area. So there's I mentioned Oakland Food Connection. Uh, they're based in East Oakland, and their uh, website is foodcommunityculture, all one word, .org. And then there's People's Grocery. They're doing work in West Oakland, peoplesgrocery.org, also City Slicker Farms. Actually, uh, if you go to the website for our class, the class is called urbanag.pbwiki.com. Go on the links there. You can find a link for all these uh, articles about urban agriculture. Um, there's a bunch of slideshows on there. You can you know see slideshows of our field trips to go killing turkeys in West Oakland and things like that. But also there's a bunch of links to organizations both in the U.S. and abroad that focus on urban agriculture. So
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much. All right. Right, You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research every Monday from 12 until 12.30 on KALX 90.7, University of California and listener-supported radio. My name is Emily Ellers. Thanks for joining us. If you have any comments or ideas for future guests, and this is very important, please don't hesitate. Contact me by email at graduates. That's graduates.kalx at gmail.com. And stay tuned next week when Lisa Marie Rollins will be speaking about transracial adoption. Until then, take care.